Welcome to Firing Pin Leadership, your podcast about leadership development with an emphasis on growth and influence. While each episode centers on public service, discussions cover what works and what doesn't to guide and support your leadership acumen. I'm your host, BJ King. In this episode, I welcome Joe King. Joe has been in law enforcement for 29 years. He worked his way up to serve in positions to include that of Patrol and Administration Sergeant, Director of Communications, and then Commander of Emergency Services, a detention center, and patrol. The last 10 years of his career consisted of having the rank of Captain. He is currently the Commander of a Regional Law Enforcement Academy, and he is also my brother. I know that the sound is a bit raw at first, but it clears up. I would like to welcome Joe. The thing that you don't always plan when you start this line of work is a plan for your leadership path mm-hmm. as something that you're usually stumbling on your leadership path before you start realizing it's time to develop it. Uh, the most most significant trainings I had in leadership, um, I was a member of LEDA, Law Enforcement Executive Development Association, mm-hmm. through the FBI. Uh, I completed the trilogy, which is the various levels of of leadership through their program. And then I participated in LEADS, which is uh, done in Lawrence, Kansas, was the regional FBI Law Enforcement Executive Development Seminar. Though I've done a lot of other trainings, those are the ones that I would say were the most powerful in shaping my leadership path. Again, usually it starts after you stumble onto their route and then you identify the best way to proceed. Okay, so what is your perspective of leadership how would you be able to label that uh for the first line to executive what is the route that you think would that other people would not think of in regards for the most effectiveness for the level of most effectiveness understanding consequences for that development how would you label that well the first thing is everything matters Um, everything that you do to demonstrate your integrity uh, your professionalism is what oftentimes how you end up on a leadership path. And when you're unwavering and strong in your decisions and stand up for the right, avoid what is wrong, oftentimes you get opportunities. The benefit is that you have lots of opportunities to practice your leadership. And so I would say that never miss an opportunity to continue to develop. Don't ever miss an opportunity to show your individual leadership. Leadership does not require rank or position. Uh, So therefore, you have, especially in our line of work, the ability to practice and influence other people successfully in resolving or mitigating problems. Okay. With that, at what point do you typically see a law enforcement officer transition from rookie level to veteran? At what point is that to where the light bulb comes on in that employee to where now they, they can be more trusted and seen as veteran seasoned just enough. Typically, where does that happen? And what's the major cause of that that you believe? A lot of times that that usually happens about year five of their experience where they've done enough things to master certain skill sets. Uh, Things that can accelerate that would be a crucible moment, some Mm -hmm. big event or circumstance either personally or professionally for the individual that launches them into an opportunity to demonstrate that leadership against maybe some type of adversity. Did you have that moment? 
I would say I did, but my because of my career path, it was broken a little bit. Okay. Um, so when I promoted, I was with my second agency as a law enforcement officer. Mm -hmm. So I actually, you know, I received the opportunity to promote in what seemed like a very quick path there. Mm -hmm. My path was actually longer for anybody that didn't realize it because I came from another agency. Mm -hmm. I would say the point where I really saw the opportunity for me was after I was a a first line supervisor. Uh, I had a commander that left the department and then I ran a division as a sergeant for more than 10 months. Uh, So I was challenged into dealing with other people of rank, position, history, and authority above me. And that made that a much more challenging path. And I learned to to practice certain skills that made me a much stronger person going forward. Were people able to see that? Some. I would say I, I don't believe that the subordinate people beneath me really saw too much of that. But as I was dealing with the the other command staff members and all, they saw it and they reacted negatively to it because I was not considered an equal or a peer to them, even though I had some duties and assignments that may have tied me close to it. In regards to your journey of growth and leading, no matter how painful and the fruits of the labor of the learning curve that you had, do you have a story of the bumps along the road that you can share? <laughs> well... As far as the challenge, that that first path really was. And then mm-hmm. even after running that division for 10 months, I was not given the go ahead and I wasn't promoted for several years later beyond the rank of sergeant. So to say that there were bumps along the way, I, I guess the problem with leadership is, is every person who wants to aspire to be a leader has a timeline in their own head. And unfortunately, the events of the world and the things that give you your opportunities don't always happen at the same speed as the things in your head. And so part of it is is when things don't go the way you plan, don't punish yourself or hold yourself back from opportunities that come in the future. It's about looking for those opportunities when they happen. I'm I'm a firm believer of I like to avoid trying to create those because I think that creates a negative environment that other people see and feel. But when you're looking openly for those opportunities, you can oftentimes find a path by which you get to launch yourself forward and show other people what you bring to the table. Then what was your hardest moment leading a person or persons for that journey? What was the hardest moment? The hardest moment was the day that they named the person who was going to be the division commander after I'd ran it for 10 months, who knew nothing about what we were doing. And his first day of paid law enforcement was as my commander. That was the hardest day because again, there were, there was no information prior to the the announcement to me individually. So there was a, a bit of a shock factor. Um, And then there was limited opportunity to process the information before being cornered by not only the executive, but the new commander and maybe others that that were involved. So the the hardest day of my career was coming back to work the day after that happened. How did you pick yourself up to continue leading after that when you saw such a emotional professional hit? Toughest challenge for anybody is we all have our own plan. We all have a thing, a, a time frame we're thinking of. We think we've demonstrated or shown people what we're really made of. And the hardest decision in the world for an executive is when you see somebody with potential 
And the answer is not yet. So realizing that, that I had that about myself, I've now, after 10 years of being a commander, I've had to look at people and do the same thing with, I think you bring a lot of skill and talent to the table. I think you bring opportunities with you that when everything lines up, you'll be able to demonstrate your true talents and abilities, but now's not it. And that that's always a tough decision or discussion to have. You know, the idea is not to crush a future leader with you're not ready, but to be honest, had I been promoted as soon as I wanted, I would have probably failed miserably because I didn't know the things I didn't know at that point. So to say that the executive knew more about me than I realized and that and that I didn't recognize about myself, I look back on a, on a very positive career and want to go back and thank that that same executive who passed me over because I believe I was way more successful for the lessons I learned afterwards. So the hindsight's twenty twenty, and you see that now. I do. I, I I really do believe that. And so, if I had any advice for a future leader that's wanting to aspire, it's hard to do it, but you have to do some self-reflection, cool self-reflection. And when things don't go the way you want, ask yourself the tough questions. Why? Why didn't this go my way? And what is it I gained by it not going my way today? Because if you cannot lose your focus on where you want to be, then every day you're aspiring to move toward that. The best advice I ever got from that same executive that passed me over in a different conversation with him was don't be so fixated on where you want to be that you forget where you are. And I think there's a lot of value to that advice that he gave me and that I carry with me going forward. Uh, so because what happens in, and we, we've all seen people that do this, they get so fixated on the things they want to be doing that the things they're responsible for fail. And eventually that's what that's what they're remembered for is their failures, not the things that they maintained and continue to aspire forward. In regards to thinking of aspiring forward, how forward does one leader such as yourself that has had that experience to the command level, how far out do you see planning as well as how to educate others that are subordinates to also see that long-term thought? How do you, uh, how do you do that? And how do you get others to do that as well? Well, I would say I probably don't do it as well as I should. Again, as I started to say earlier, everything's an opportunity. Every day is an opportunity to demonstrate your professionalism, your strength, your confidence. And to be honest, until you hit a crucible moment, most people don't realize what you're doing for them or how you're leading them. So if you're very consistent and you always represent yourself in the right place and you're doing it for the right people and you do those things with an intent, then you don't have to plan as much. A lot of leaders will tell you, a lot of trainings will tell you, that you should be planning this and playing it more like a chess game. That works for some people, some personality types. I can tell you that's not really, I was not a calculating person on where I wanted to go or what I wanted to be doing. Um, I always, I always took the opinion of I'll work wherever they tell me that they need me to work. And I remember one time I had a, another commander tell me as I was aspiring to promote from up to the point of command level. And well, they really need you here. And this is where you're successful. And I said, how narrow-minded are you? If you think this is the only assignment in this department I could be successful in, I'll be successful wherever the, wherever the sheriff or the, or the chief would put me. The idea is, is successful people will, will rise to the challenge. So every assignment I had, 
I purposely made myself as much as possible an expert on the issues and topics for that area. And I focused on those. And so I didn't have time to go back and think about, well, what if I hadn't been promoted or what if I hadn't done this? I was always looking forward. I was always looking for those opportunities forward. So because I did that, I didn't really have to set the chessboard and manipulate to try to get to where I wanted to be. Opportunities came to me again, more than 10 years as a commander, those things moving me forward were because I was always looking for the the opportunity that already existed. And how do you get others to see not linear, but a little bit more strategic, such as I, while you show a level of willingness to progress, how do you get others to open their blinders and see the whole road? Yeah, they're in their lane, but to consider the whole road. Well, in real leadership, I believe you have to approach those people that engage you in that type of conversation very candidly with the idea that every opportunity that comes to them has to hinge on their willingness to do whatever that assignment would be. The reason why I say that is, is, you know, having worked in a sheriff's office where we managed a jail and we did certain things, I, I knew that was a realistic thing. I, I knew that I would go anywhere that the sheriff would ask me to work for him. Some people though, and we all see this in organizations, I'll never do that. Those people automatically limit themselves and anybody that hears them is going to limit what opportunities come to them because they don't want to be controlled by somebody that's arising, rising in the organization. Mm -hmm. So the reality is, is you have to be willing to accept whatever the challenge is to move forward. And if you're not willing to do that, then maybe this isn't the right leadership path for you. It's not just about being patient, though. It's about realizing that every choice you make about what assignment you ask for or what assignments, collateral duties that you do, maybe even how you balance your personal life sets the table. You know, some people will calculate and plan that that chessboard setup and other people. And there's nothing wrong with this. Mm -hmm. Prioritize their family for a few years. I've done some of those same things. And you need to understand that all of those will affect the trajectory of your career path. Not necessarily good or bad, but that it does set the chessboard for how you're going to play going forward. So as you look at somebody with 15 years and now they're looking at promotional opportunities or specialized assignments or whatever, that those are real opportunities that still exist for them. And they have now 15 years experience behind them to demonstrate to other people what they bring to the table for either one of those challenges. That is powerful. Uh, I always aspired very early on that I wanted to promote. So I was looking specifically for opportunities to promote. I knew that when I tested for Sergeant that I was testing against people who were longer tenured in the department, but we were also working for a guy who was very analytical. I purposely knocked the test out of the water. I scored well enough on the test that they changed the test after I took it. That's not a bragging point. I worked that hard because I knew even if there was a a feeling that we needed to go with somebody in-house, that the analytical version of the boss would go, well, how do we pass up the guy who scored a 98% on my test when other people were at 76? So you create those opportunities. What are some of the takeaways for leadership investment that others may not consider? What are the things like, oh, this is one of those unattended consequences that I didn't think of could happen. However, I'm lucky enough now. What are those takeaways? For me, that's kind of a harder discussion. I can tell you that when I've tried to mentor people into thinking about their leadership path and all, one of the the things I quote the most 
is Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. The first one of those being taking responsibility for oneself. So this is the conversation I have with recruits in the academy. Mm-hmm. Taking responsibility for oneself. And I, I specifically talk about the circles of control and influence. So you have the innermost circle being the things fully in their control. The second circle being the things where they have influence. And the third circle being the things completely out of their control. Mm-hmm. And I tell them repeatedly, and I share this in, in times that I talk and, and all with, with multiple groups of people. But the most successful people I personally have ever encountered live in the first two circles. They practice and master how to be responsible for themselves and how they have influence on others. And and then as you progress, those circles change. The people you influence are different when you become a supervisor or a commander in a department. But learning to be able to focus on that and and always coming back because the people that are sitting out there on that outer outer circle Mm -hmm. complaining, whining, moaning, whatever the, the circumstance would be are wasting their time. Mm-hmm. Very efficient people, very driven people, if they stay focused in the first two circles, tend to be successful. Okay. So as for the academy that you're the commander of now, and you're dealing with people who are looking to start careers, and you are familiar with numerous people that have completed their careers, knowing what the world is facing now, what do you consider success? For a career? Well, first of all, we have to stop looking at the newest generation of cops coming to academies or starting their careers as being the same as those of us that have been around for more than 10. Where we see challenges have been the fact that things have changed dramatically since we started. Uh, For instance, when I first was on patrol, it was unlawful to have a weapon concealed inside your vehicle. It was a felony for unlawful use of a weapon. I sent several people to prison for that violation. And today, that's no longer a violation of law. Unless they are prohibited from being able to have the firearm, them having it concealed in their car is not a big deal. The difference is, is you need to understand the people coming into the law enforcement academies today, starting their careers today, this is the world that they've grown up in. This has been this way. It hasn't been a change for them. This is how they understand the world. So they are navigating it better sometimes than those people that have been around for a while, which would be the challenge to the person who's looking to promote or going to specialize things after 10 or 15 years. You're carrying that personal baggage with you about how the world has changed. And I would tell you that for the newest people, it hasn't since they've been paying attention. Along that line, what do you have to say about those that are looking to leave just out of sheer yeah, that riot kind of tore me up. I, I think I'm done. How do you convince a subordinate that, yeah, this is a bad time, but it's worth holding the line for your career and the development for yourself and supporting your community? I think that's a loaded question in the sense that you're also playing into generational values and things like that as well. The difference being that we expect people to hold hold their values as the world's changing around them. And the reality is, is, you know, someone who's a millennial is going to handle it different than somebody that's a Gen X and where they hold those values. And just because they're part of a generation doesn't mean that they carry all the baggage of that generation. It's that they carry tendencies that we tend to recognize and work to develop and educate and how we're going to sustain people. I believe that the key to holding on to that group, though, that may have those concerns has to do with how we as professionals and and then even on a personal level or a professional level engage those folks into how to continue to survive and manage 
the things that become stressors and the things that would maybe cause them to feel like it's a negative experience when some of it really is the same experience that some of us experienced during Rodney King, you know, and, and events like the Oklahoma city bombing and things like that. Yes. There, there's always going to be political factors and stuff there. Part of it is, is to take them back to those three circles and say, you know, there are things out of your control here, but if you manage yourself and you focus on serving your community and you focus on serving people, well, can you continue to work even when things aren't aligning exactly the way you'd like? What do you have to say in regards to leading your observations of those that led in law enforcement when you first started out compared to the requirements or support that leading those that do lead uh, provide now? How contrast are they and could they be reversed? I would argue that today's supervisors, managers, and leaders in the organizations tend to be better educated and with more tools in the toolbox Mm -hmm. than the commanders when I first started. You tended to see a lot more commanders that ruled solely by heavy fist. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk about leadership to folks, I try to remind them that every experience you have with good leaders and bad leaders, especially the advanced trainings or education that you have, we should be shoving all of those tools in the toolbox that we carry with us. And when it's a tool that you know you've seen work, bring it out and practice with it a little bit. Learn to master that tool. But when it is something that you know was not positive, was negative, uh, that you bring that tool out, you look at it and you remind yourself mentally why that tool does not work. So if it was the certain way you saw somebody treat another employee, if it was a way that you saw them manipulate a situation to the negative, pull that out, remind yourself, the reason I don't do this is because when I saw it work this way, it failed miserably and I don't want to be that type of leader. So I would say find people that you can emulate and follow and what that brings brings to you and your talent set. Not everything you see, can you make work for you? You And you got to remember, It's not just the things that you know, it's the talents. It is the experiences that you bring to the table that give credibility to the tools that you have. What is an example where it was a hard day of leading or guiding and how did you get through it to make it as graceful as possible and supporting the mission that you were looking to accomplish? The hardest day, obviously, that that any supervisor or commander deals with is usually a day involving where somebody that we're responsible for gets hurt. And so I have two instances when I was the jail commander where I had a very violent, dangerous inmate on two separate occasions attacked two staff members, uh, broke orbital socket on one, and the second one ended up with having to go through some facial reconstructive surgery. And I'm responsible for all aspects of this mm-hmm. from this was an inmate that I initially took from another jurisdiction to hold for them that after the first assault that I put all of my staff dealing with this person in riot gear to deal with him. Then you have things that didn't line out properly as far as even from staff training and stuff, some core values and things. When we look at defensive tactics and positioning and things like that, you have a perfect storm of things going wrong, but I have a staff member who gets seriously hurt. So how do you stay focused on that? 
one, you support the employee. And the good news is, is, you know, there have been times I've seen when this type of thing has happened and the employee separates or, or they leave law enforcement or whatever. Uh, that was not the case with this one. Hopefully uh, part of that was the fact that uh, the supervisors and myself went a long ways in trying to support the employee and, and helping uh, get them restored back as fully as possible before we went down any other things. Um, but I, I own part of the decision uh, as far as I took in the inmate from another facility. I knew the potential and I would argue that all my staff knew the potential for violence with this individual. But you make one mistake not being in the right place with this individual and this individual took an opportunity to attack another officer. So the that would be the hardest thing. And then trying to figure out and straighten you know, everything else is, you know, how, how do I get control of the situation? How do I avoid a third assault? How do I, you know, how do I make sure I don't end up with a dead staff member? You know, and I mean, at the point where this, this attack occurred, it was three staff members and this inmate by themselves in the, in the area. Uh, so, you know, part of it was trying to increase training in all kinds of areas of defensive tactics and confidence in the employees that were engaging this individual and, making sure that they knew that they had the support of the administration if they needed to take additional action against this individual. Uh, the good news is later on, this individual was removed by uh, the marshal service, put into the federal system, and he's currently uh, being prosecuted on a death penalty case related to all of his bad acts, including the assaults on staff members in our facilities. So, Okay, so there was a level of certain accountability there, and you continued your support. That was a hard day, though. I mean, what did you learn from it from in order to be graceful? What did you learn from that for the the tough part about being a supervisor is when you have to tell people to take that hill to move into the building toward the active shooter. And though everybody will tell you that they're aware of that when they sign up, it's a whole different thing in the middle of the shots being fired. And so you have to demonstrate your confidence and your willingness to still do the job and realize as a leader, your problem is, is I had no problem going in on things on my own, but when I'm directing other people to do it and then things go wrong, there is a supplemental accountability that you were talking about. The, I, I've, I had some responsibility in this, not that it changes the decisions that I made or what I would do, but uh, when you add additional stressors on folks, it does affect how they process the situation at hand. And though you believe people have been trained properly and and know what they're supposed to be doing and that you've provided protective equipment, you think you've done everything you can to prevent this from happening, but then it still happens. You know, it's there's no such thing as no fault here. I do own the responsibility and what I do as staff and how I prepared them. And then there's the backlash of everybody else's opinions of what they think happened. And so you had, you know, we had to look at different ways to reinforce with staff how we're going to maintain control, how we're still going to manage this offender, even going into the dinner service after this event happened. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not like you have time to go, well, you know, we'll sit on it for a day and figure out what we're going to do. It doesn't happen. You have to still move forward on making decisions. And my my point is, is you can call yourself a leader all you want, but until you have to lead people through adversity, you're not really leading anybody. How do you do that? Well, hopefully you're using those tools and those skills and the education you have. There's no such thing as a as a perfect leadership thing. Those that people would look back in history and say were perfect leaders, 
or the ones that just happen to lead a good group of people through a very challenging thing. So as you are looking to develop a new generation of law enforcement with your current position, what are the challenges of the prospective cadets ideologies that are hard for them to understand what this line of work is and how do you not correct it, but actually be honest with them that you're going to find a goat on a rope and you're not going to know what to do with it. How do you overcome that? I'm fortunate with the least where I am, the tenure of the instructors and and the positions that they have. So when we're teaching and we're giving examples, we're, we're being as candid and sharing real information as possible. And I think every academy tries to do this, but um, I do a lot of independent supplemental trainings with the, the recruits into real world examples. We do a lot of scenario training. We've enhanced equipment, vehicles, and things that we're using for those types of trainings. The benefit is, again, though there's a, a change in my career on how we're responding to things and how the public views some of the stuff we're doing, we're fortunate with where we sit that I would say the community still supports us here and those types of things that are very beneficial for the folks coming into the field in this area. I just think that there has to be, again, the tough part has been trying not to whitewash or trying to make, not trying to entice people in that don't want to be here. And I believe there's a couple of questions that every applicant in law enforcement should be asked. One is, is if necessary, could you take the life of another human being that was trying to hurt or kill you or, or a friend or another innocent person? And most people applying would say, oh, sure. And then the question is, is, can you take your thumb and shove it through their eye socket and pull their brain out to make it happen? Because when you have to act like this, it's not pretty. It's, it's, it's the ugliest side of human human endeavor. So the question is, you know, and it makes them pause for a minute. And that's good. I, like I said, I think you have to be realistic with, you know, it's not, it's not like TV. It's not boom, boom. And they fall down. They sometimes will chase you after you've shot them. So, you know, I, I, I get challenged by people who don't like the physical requirements of the Academy and well, it's not like I'm ever going to run a mile and a half. And I'm like, you need to understand that I'm trying to build strength, endurance, balance, and flexibility so that when you chase them, let's say just a mile, but then them and their friends want to fight you, that you have gas in the tank to get that done. This is about this is about mind over matter. This is about understanding the challenge that's been put in front of you. And so if your supervisor says, I need you to take this hill, I need you to enter this house, I need you to find the bad guy and put them down that you understand that it's not, oh, well, I'm sorry, that's one step past a mile and a half. I'm not going to be able to do anything else today. No, I need you to understand that this is about accomplishing a mission and understand that it's about completing things that every veteran officer you work with is waiting for you to prove your worth from the time you start with the organization. And you can, and everybody does. And there, there is that, that moment of, I want to see that after a good fight, that your uniform's as dirty and wrinkled as mine. And that tells me I should trust you. Well, I understand that, but I also want to tell them up front that I expect them to make sure that if their uniform is just as dirty, that they were just as justified in the things that they did. And those are the conversations I have. This is about, you know, you can't, you can't stand back and let somebody do bad things. You, you have to intervene. You have to, you have to be smart about it and you need to understand that there's all kinds of human factors that come into play that include maybe a set of rage when that person's, you know, as you're putting them in the patrol car spits on the officer in the face. If that's what happens, 
then your job is to grab your partner, pull him to the side and say, hey, go get yourself checked out. I'll get him to jail. And you make it happen. We do that to protect each other. And so a lot of the focus that I've tried to take into the academy has been about the fraternity of law enforcement that we take care of each other. And that includes watching for mental health issues, mm -hmm. uh, suicide risk. And we have to stop putting our head in the sand with, oh, that won't happen to any of us or it can't happen. We know it can and we can be very smart about it. But we also at the moments where officers tend to make their biggest mistakes and damage a relationship with the community is tied to the fact that they're making an emotional response and somebody else could have intervened and protected them, their career path, maybe their families that are going to suffer through whatever happens that goes way wrong. Is there anything else that you would like to discuss, share in regards to or sum up or clarify anything that we've already uh, covered in this brief conversation specifically about leading downrange and supporting others and the development of leading downrange? Well, the biggest thing is, is what I said earlier about. Leadership does not require rank or position or direct authority. You can be a good leader showing others how to be a good employee, how to complete a mission, how to support each other. It doesn't have to be a formal thing. And that goes back to something our dad always told us. Those who can lead should lead. And I believe that that is as valuable at any time as anything else. In other words, you know, realize that you can be tapped at any time in an emergency situation where you're the one making the decisions. But if you've practiced every day leading where and when appropriate to do so and helping people do the right things, you know, in the end, we want people to be able to say that in the end, they knew we were going to do the right thing. Well, that's because we've demonstrated over and over again in front of them on even things that didn't matter or they weren't really paying attention that we would do the right things. So it's true with the word justice in there for anything the right. And you're into the realm of what I'm talking about. Hey, I want to thank my guests for their insights on leadership. I also want to thank you, the listeners. Don't forget to follow Firing Pin Leadership on social media, which includes Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Keep in mind, a portion of proceeds goes to ConcernsOfPoliceSurvivors.org. Concerns of Police Survivors provides resources to fallen officers, families, and co-workers to rebuild their shattered lives. COPS offers training and assistance to law enforcement agencies nationwide on how to respond to tragic loss of a member of the law enforcement profession. Take care and God bless.